0: Before we get going, guys, I want to remind you that there are opportunities for you to donate to good causes that can help the people that are being affected by this plague. Uh, For this episode, it's going to be the United Way New York City. You can find them at unitedwaynyc.org. And to earmark your funds specifically for COVID-19, just go to that address slash COVID-19. This is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for April 1st, 2020. I'm Justin Robert Young. In the United States, as I read this at 1.13pm Pacific Time, there are 210,714 coronavirus cases confirmed, 4,697 deaths. The tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut continues to be the epicenter, accounting for 50% of the total loss of life. However, we have seen an increase in the death rate from Michigan, Massachusetts, Illinois, and Louisiana. President Donald Trump and the Coronavirus Task Force extended the guidelines suggested during the 15 Days to Slow the Spread until the end of April. The governors of the following states have issued shelter or stay-at-home orders effective currently. Arizona, Tennessee, the District of Columbia, and Nevada. Florida has also issued a statewide order that will go into effect on April 3rd. That is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update Politics, 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 politics! politics. politics. Yes. 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 Oh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. Like an island... In a roiling sea, an oasis amongst the desert, we can gather here twice a week at the very least and uh, share in our common chaos. We're going to talk about a lot. We're going to talk about what the hell is going to happen in Wisconsin on Tuesday. By the way, they're going to do a primary. Yeah, that's going to happen. We're going to talk about China because if you listen to Friday's episode, then you kind of know where this one's going. And we're going to do an interview all about how our more and more nationalized view of politics is not only shaping the way that we look at politicians and government, but also how it's affecting how we're digesting information in this simultaneously local and national problem that we face with the coronavirus. But first, we have to talk about what happened at the White House press conference yesterday. I have very deliberately tried with this podcast to keep a even keel. I I you know, have have tried to spare my histrionics for things that, you know, are, are more and more on the political scale, you know, but how Joe Biden should be handling his campaign, that kind of stuff. So I, I hope it is with that sensibility that you hear the tone in my voice right now and you know that this is not me trying to be melodramatic. I am indeed trying to remain realistic when I tell you that for the next few weeks, there's not going to be a lot of sunny days. Donald Trump and his coronavirus task force have set our expectations for deaths in the United States between 100,000 and 240,000 dead Americans. There are some that say that is low had somebody reach out to me on Twitter that are, that are doing their own models and are saying that, that it might be closer to half a million. Yesterday, we lost over 900 Americans. This is the first time that we've seen a daily death toll reach the heights of what we're seeing out of Italy and Spain. Statistics dictate that it will only get worse for the next two weeks because of our higher population. The Murray model, a statistical projection from the University of Washington, portends a grim immediate future. You can see this yourself, by the way. This has gone a little viral. Oh, geez. Can we use that word still? Uh, But you can find it. COVID-19, that is COVID19.healthdata.org slash projections. That's where you can see all these numbers. They go state by state. And when you look at it, you're going to realize that we are only at the beginning, as we are going to look for the next week as around 1,000 people die per day. And when we're done with that, we're going to get to the time when 2,000 people die per day. Sometime around the middle of this month, it begins to relent and slowly is on the downslope. And the Murray model is optimistic, like I said. It only projects that 90,000 people will be dead from the plague of our times, COVID-19. Now, in a second, I'm going to get into the politics of expectation and execution. And let me just say this. Clear before I do. Please stay safe. We, everybody listening to this right now, we are not going to survive on partisanship. We are not going to thrive on a stubborn sense of pride. No matter what your affiliation or your previous point of view on this virus, I ask you, as the voice in your head, please humble yourself amongst the dead. Social distancing is not a guideline, it's a mandate, and it's not from the government, it's from all of us. This is not Watergate, it's not Iran-Contra, it's not Monica Lewinsky, it's not Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. This is the 1819 Spanish flu, and it is here to kill all of us. Now, the good news is that all the models that we have seen thus far are primarily based on the only American data that it has, which right now is from New York and New Jersey. These are very densely packed areas. But America, by and large, is not as population-dense as those areas. We can make a difference. And I would never deny you guys... Your opinion, because you know how much I think that that does matter, that we all contribute to this conversation. All I ask you to do is keep those hot takes on Twitter, which you can post from the secure Wi-Fi of your own home. And so it is with that that we get to what this means politically. This is the first time that the Coronavirus Task Force has put a number to the projected death toll. That means something. And I am positive that the political wing of the White House was at least made aware of what this messaging was going to be. Because they now know that there are laws of gravity to how this plays out. Now at the low end, 100,000 Americans is a gaudy number. Right now, as I speak to you, Italy leads the world with around 12,000 deaths. This would obviously be exponentially more than that, which is expected considering the fact that we have 270 million more citizens than Italy has. Of course, we don't exactly know how many dead China has. More on that in a second. In my mind... 100k looms large if we end below possibly far below then Trump's private sector deal making including even the my pillow guy will be looked at as effective by average Americans if we are at 100k or slightly higher then I don't believe he will get much extra credit, but he will at least be looked at as letting professionals address the nation competently. But if we are closer to that top, of 240,000, let alone above, and those deaths primarily come from the hospital breakdown, like what we've seen in Italy, France, Spain, and the UK then I believe that there is very little chance that Trump will be reelected. At least that's the view right now. Guys, I, I, I can't tell you that uh, this is easy. I, I, I don't feel good doing it. I, I genuinely do not feel very good about handicapping the possible... Ways that this can go right or wrong politically. Because I don't much have my mind on the politics of it all. I genuinely have my eye on the humanity of it all. The last thing I want, and I've said this before, during and after this this crisis, is I don't want trivial political stuff to get in the way of good information. I thought it was very, very bad that CNN... Uh, didn't air yesterday's press conference specifically because there was good information from Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx whether or not you find Donald Trump to be an effective communicator, which I don't personally. I don't think he is an effective communicator. I still believe that looking at the people that are presenting him with the data, judging them for their credibility, judging the data that they are presenting for their credibility is insanely important. Insanely important. And I don't believe that CNN, a news channel that literally made its bones on being there with cameras so the viewers could see it themselves. That was the difference between cable news and Broadcast news, broadcast news, the video went into the editor, the editor edited it to show that showed you what they wanted you to see. And now CNN is doing the exact same thing. They are unlearning the lesson that made them famous during the Gulf War and they are gatekeeping your information. And I thought it was bad Yesterday, I encourage you to watch those press conferences. At the very least, just mute it when Trump's on and unmute it when Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks are on. They are giving, uh, you know, I I thought Dr. Fauci yesterday specifically talking about what models are and what models are not is very important. Why they matter, why they matter for expectations, how they are fed the data that they are fed, how they can go wrong, how they can be right, why they are predictive, why they aren't when they go wrong. These are important lessons that are being discussed on the official clearinghouse of federal information on a daily basis. I would encourage you guys to watch them, Uh, although I I would say you can probably turn it off as soon as they go To the questions, uh, mostly because some of the questions are just really bad. And they went like two hours yesterday. I mean, again, nobody's got time for two hours. Except for me, who watched all of it. I know that this feels trivial right now. And I know that there will be a point when I can grasp... The political details, granular though they might be, and shine them up for you. But for now, the only battle to be won is our survival. And the only tools we have to fight it, if we don't already have it, is social distancing.
1: Name and your date of birth and simply hit request absentee ballot it truly only takes a few seconds but if you do go ahead and request that ballot you need to do so by april 2nd to make it easy for you so you don't have to leave the house and you
0: can still participate in the april 7th election
1: brought to you by marquette university law school that
0: is a digital ad being served to folks in the wisconsin area because indeed they're gonna have a primary next Tuesday. Remember those. Remember that that was the point of this entire part of the year. Remember when we built up for four years so we could have what we what we've been craving, what we've wanted and then in the middle of it, a stupid plague ruins everything! Oh, I'm sorry. Now, uh, the thing I want the most in the world, I am now forced to look askance at states that dare to want to give them to me. Wisconsin is going to hold a primary, and I don't necessarily think they should. According to the Murray model projections, nine people are going to die in Wisconsin of COVID-19 the day that this primary is set to happen. Likely because of the kind of fears that are surrounding this plague, many volunteer poll workers are quitting their posts for fear that they will get the virus. The National Guard, which was brought into Wisconsin so as to help with security and logistics, are now being told that they might man the polls. Bernie Sanders has explicitly called for the primary to be delayed. Joe Biden has used his get out the vote effort to encourage people to get mail in ballots. And that's really kind of the, the hole in the sheet for this is that all the politicians that uh, uh, really want this to go on. They're all saying, well, request mail in ballots. And even the governor said, well, just mail everybody mail in ballots or mail everybody requests for mail in ballots. But as we discussed with Eric Geller last week, that that's easier said than done. You know, there there are very specific kind of rules you have for stuff like this. So why is it happening? Why are sitting politicians in any way encouraging people to leave their house and gather en masse to do anything? Well, it's not just about Bernie and Biden. There are also crucial down-ballot races that both parties want to see completed even if it's into the incline of the steepest part of our national death curve a Wisconsin Supreme Court seat where the appoint where an appointee of Governor Scott Walker is going against a democratically endorsed candidate the result to that could directly affect a fight over voter registration in what will be a key swing state in 2020 also the mayor of Milwaukee of course Biggest state in the union. But, I mean, really? Really? Move the primary! There are lawsuits now that are currently out. I guess that there's going to be a ruling on it, possibly later today. You might already know the result of this by the time that you're listening. But the fact that politicians are saying, just get an absentee ballot. And there's been a lot of them. Apparently uh, around a million Wisconsinites already have their mail-in ballot. That's more than the quarter million that used them in 2020. But this is just... To focus on you can just get a mail-in ballot instead of please don't leave the house. You can't just sweep please leave the house under the rug or we're going to allow people to leave the house. Either you close down all physical polling And you say we can only do absentee ballots, and therefore we are going to extend the deadline until we can get enough absentee ballots for anybody who wants one. Or you just move it, you move it later. Like I said, you're probably going to know the answer to this, but I'm just imploring to the governor of Wisconsin, who's a Democrat, to the Republican-held legislature, please, I'll I'll put it in language you understand. Think about your phony baloney jobs. Think about what's going to happen when you get the National Guard sick. Think about that. Is that going to look good on your resume? I don't think so. Politics. Headline... From Bloomberg News, China concealed extent of virus outbreak. U.S. intelligence says, this is an article by Nick Wadhams, and for my money, my favorite White House uh, uh, press corps member, someone who covers the president every single day, Jennifer Jacobs. She is of... Bloomberg. but I think she does a fantastic job. Big shout out to Jennifer Jacobs. Here's the lead here. China has concealed the extent of the coronavirus outbreak in its country, underreporting both real cases and deaths it suffered from the disease. The U.S. intelligence community concluded in a classified report to the White House, according to three U.S. officials. Now, this story winds up coming out because there are probably people that are on the White House side that know because they have eyes and they are aware that uh, the country of China likes to misrepresent things because they're an autocracy that runs the media that China was doing exactly this. And so they get a report from the intelligence communities and now it's not the White House saying it because I'm sure they have to maintain on some level a relationship between Trump and Xi, but at the very least, you can have somebody with some kind of authority say, "Well, this is obviously a fib." I told you guys on Friday that China was lying. China is lying, and I think they're—I think they're still lying. I think that they still have an outbreak there. I—I I honestly don't think that they would have taken. The steps that they have taken up till now, unless they still have a problem, and, and and this is is kind of where this comes in. And and hold on, before I I, I get into this, th- there is this, this very weird thing that happens, uh, uh where uh, you, you mentioned that China hid this. You mentioned that China knows more than they let on. You mentioned that China. I mean, imagine what the news stories would have been. If China was saying, hey, we have 10,000 dead in January or February, we have skyrocketing cases. We have never seen anything with this level of contagious killing power in the history of our country. And you could arguably make that case that that's what they've seen. Instead, they hit it. And I'm not saying, and this is what bugs me, I'm not saying that, that the United States did a great job. I'm not saying Italy did a great job. I'm not saying that the UK did a great job. I think that, yes, you can know your teammates here on the world stage and understand that if China says they have a, a, a minor outbreak, that they might have a pandemic on their hands. Yeah, you can probably price that in. But what bothers me about that line of thought, is that as soon as we get into the what about, then we we ignore the fact that, look, this is still an evolving situation in China. If we knew exactly what was happening in China, then we would have a lot of really important lessons. The Western world, Italy, Spain, UK, Germany, France, America. We would all know what they did and didn't do and how effectively it worked. Instead, we didn't get a baseline and we don't know the treatment. And when we talk about a, 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 this is a, we're all in this together scenario, that's the kind of stuff that matters. According to Bloomberg uh, quoting this report from the intelligence community, the outbreak began in China's Hubei province in late 2019, but the country publicly reported only 82,000 cases and 3,300 deaths, according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins. That compares to more than... 189,000 cases, and more than 4,000 deaths in the United States, the largest publicly reported outbreak in the world. There was a report yesterday that British intelligence believed that China might be concealing their numbers by a factor of 40. Alexa, what's 40 times 3,300? 40 times
1: 3,000.
0: 132,000. A reminder that the guidance for America is 100,000 to 250,000. That could put them right in the middle and they might still be having problems. Allow me to get a little inside baseball for a second. I have been, on some level, dependent on Patreon.com for several years now. And in my experience with Patreon.com, there is usually what is referred to as a churn. X amount of people come on, X amount of people drop off. Normally, this happens in a very predictable pattern. On the first, when people are charged for their patronage... People very often look at their bank statements and they look at their budgets and they, they think about how often they've used the services that they have been charged for and they make decisions on whether or not they would like to keep, cancel, or curtail their spending. And often with Patreons, you know, especially when you're doing stuff that is already free, you might feel bad about cutting back, but many do. It's part of the game. Totally understandable. What you hope in a growing Patreon is that you then gain more of, uh, of more than you lost over the intervening month. That's more of a steady trickle. But usually all the exits come on either the first or the second. I have spent the majority of today with a rock in my stomach. At least I did in the morning. Because while I've been on Patreon for a a long time, I've never been on Patreon during uncertain economic times, let alone a likely recession, let alone a possible depression. So, on this, the most cruelly placed of April Fool's Day's, I waited on my Patreon page for my notifications, and I will make sure that I refresh this so I can tell you right now what our losses are. And as this is refreshing, let me just tell you right now that I understand. I understand right now. I mean, this is something that, that I, I, I have told any and everybody that has reached out to me, please do not feel bad. Please do not feel bad about the fact that you uh, need to drop off. All right, we are we are refreshed here. And we've got three new patrons. And we've lost nobody. I know these have been sappy. The last few weeks and eventually we'll get back to normal where I can tell some jokes and we can just be a little silly about it. Maybe I can get back to some of my, you know, pro wrestling carnival barking. But the joke I've been making amongst other people who have decided to pursue this kind of career of independent media is that we accidentally stumbled upon the only safe jobs in media. And these are people that have worked at big corporations, big and small, right? Well, let me tell you something that's happening. The Gannett newspaper chain has announced furloughs and layoffs because the ad market crashed. There ain't no more advertising. If there's no business, there ain't advertising. And people don't want to put advertising dollars into a market where nobody has any money unless you are in a, a, a very specific kind of business. Go ahead and listen to all your other podcasts. Notice what you're not hearing. A lot of the same ad buys that, that would have come otherwise. I would not be shocked if we see layoffs from some of the bigger players. I wouldn't be shocked if we see the news corps and the Viacoms of the world start, uh, the, the the NBCs of the world start laying people off. Like, This is the safest job in media. And it's here because of you. And I can only say that this is a gift for which I will never be able to repay. And I can only continue to soldier on because now I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, how much you guys care. So thank you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Politics. Our guest today is Dan Hopkins. He's a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, and you can find his 2018 book, The Increasingly United States, How and Why American Politics Nationalized. I get it. I mean, what the hell else are you doing? After you working from home. So, I mean, you know, you got free time. Just saying, read the book. He joins us now. Dan, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: All right. Uh, Now, this is something that it tends to be a recurring topic whenever we kind of take the thousand foot view of our modern politics. And and that is how we went from what were effectively regional contests that had national collection uh, in, in parties to. Where we are now, where not only our parties increasingly nationalized, but our our voter identity is increasingly nationalized. What well, where is the point where we can start to see this change?
1: That's a great question, and I think that it has. Um, in part, it depends on exactly what we mean by nationalization, um, and I think I certainly think that. Um, the 1970s were a period when you could really see the um, the fact that the United States was not yet a fully nationalized polity, where there were lots of um, Republican governors in heavily Democratic states. There were lots of Democratic governors in heavily Republican states. And then um, starting about 1980 and then ramping up. Um, in the mid-1990s, you see increasingly nationalized voting patterns where it becomes harder and harder for Democrats to win in Republican-leaning areas and for Republicans to lean to win in Democratic-leaning areas. So it sort of ratcheted up over time, but I think you can really start to see um, rising nationalization in voting patterns in the 1980s and um, even in a more pronounced way after 1994.
0: And and what is uh, obviously 1984 is a a very uh, a, a, a big you know moment a, a turning point. Uh, is there a specific issue that that leads things to to cut through nationally?
1: I think that there are there are a whole set of issues over time um, that that jointly produce a highly nationalized politics. I mean, I think that. In part, you can look back to um, the civil rights era and the fact that um, a very effective strategy of civil rights organizers was to nationalize that conflict. The conflict that had originally been, obviously not entirely, but principally confined to the southern states, um, then became a a national conflict and led to... um, and led to the reorientation over a generation of the Republican and the Democratic parties. And I think that the, so the end of the quote unquote solid South, a South that was solidly with the Democratic party was critical in, in producing today's nationalization. That if you, if you have a part of the country that is that the region as large as the South um, that is devoted to, you know, one political party, in any conditions, as the South was devoted to the Democratic Party um, between the end of Reconstruction and um, the Civil Rights Era, that's going to have system-wide effects on the calculus of other poli- of you know politicians, both in the South but outside the South. And I think that the end of Southern exceptionalism was a was a critical part of the story of how we got a very nationalized politics. One of
0: the things that I always am fascinated by, because I am a part of the media and I am therefore physically and mentally incapable of not making everything about us, uh, is that you have newspapers which are almost totally regional with uh, invisible elements of wire services kind of peppering in some of the bylines, radio and television, at least broadcast wise, that are also predominantly regional but then in the mid 80s moving into the 90s as we see things getting more national we have cable which is one signal that goes out nationally if not internationally how much does the changing scape of media uh, inform the fact that now all citizens are getting the same talking
1: points i think that the media play a critical role so in the book I try to focus on two broad causal factors. One of them is shifts in the political parties, and the second is, exactly as you laid out, shifts in the media. And you're entirely right that if I you know, woke up in Philadelphia a generation or two ago, I would have been expected to read the Philadelphia Inquirer. I probably would have watched um, a local TV outlet and a local television news, and that's in part because that would have provided essential information. I mean. A generation ago, I probably would have learned the weather from the newspaper or maybe lo- watching local TV. And indeed, uh, you know, a generation or two generations ago, if I wanted to know how the Eagles or the Phillies or the Flyers um, or the 76ers had done, um, I would have had to check local media. But nowadays, there has been a proliferation of media sources. And critically, we have decoupled um, the media that we consume from the places that we live. So I no longer need to use the Philadelphia Inquirer to find out how the Eagles are doing. I can go to ESPN, yeah. and and critically, I no longer have to read. You know, as I'm skipping to the sports pages, I won't see anything about my governor or my mayor. And so I show in the book that I think there's very, very compelling evidence that Americans media consumption habits have shifted, and we've shifted towards the kinds of media outlets that are not spatially bound, the kinds of media outlets that have every incentive to speak to a wider audience and not to provide much specific content, and that has had tremendous consequences for Americans' knowledge of their governors, their mayors, and other local and state elected officials.
0: Now, the the counterpoint to that that I've heard is that it's not as if there was no national media footprint before. Certainly, the daily news or the the nightly news uh, is is even in our modern context revered uh, as something that that was a clearinghouse of information that the that that the nation could all agree upon. Uh, why is it just? Is it just a critical mass of it that now, nationally, uh, uh, there's there's just so much. There's 24 hours. You can never be without a national message. If you'd like, that erodes the interest of the local messaging.
1: It's a great question, and I think it's critical to keep in mind that in the you know in the 60s and 70s. Um, there really were the television was a very very compelling medium and there really were relatively few options, right? This is pre-cable and your television dial might only give you, you know, three, four five six channels and So the, the norms by which those channels operated would have a powerful influence on the information to which you were exposed and so the fact that America's three major networks all provided um, news in roughly the same format, yes, Meant there's, there's always been a lot of national news. And indeed, as part of this book project, I did an extensive content analysis of different newspapers. And I don't think it'll surprise anybody to know that even in the sort of heyday of um, print media, state government is not getting a lot of attention, right? Yeah. That when, I've, when I've looked at, say, the, the Chicago Tribune or the Chicago Sun-Times, you don't get a lot of bylines from Springfield. Um, but it is the case that mayors used to get a substantial amount of attention, that um, local senators and local representatives used to get far more attention. And I think the critical point is that nowadays, you don't have to be exposed to political information as a byproduct of seeking out other other things. Like If you want to know the weather, you can just get the weather. And that didn't used to be the case. So critically, people used to watch local news for the five minutes that were about their sports team or the five minutes that were about the weather. And as a byproduct, they'd find out more about what was happening in their locality. And whereas some people thought with the the rise of the internet and the decline of production costs, that you might see a flourishing of, of very hyper-local media outlets. Um, and to some degree, they're they're certainly... You know, there are a lot of neighborhood newsletters and whatnot. Um, but there has been a decimation of um, city-based and and more regional newspapers, um, radio stations and television news outlets, because um, at the end of the day, the people who are seeking out political information are motivated by nationalized identities. They're motivated by um, by taking sides in national political fights. And they're only really interested in state and local politics insofar as that Um, Is there some sort of pale reflection of the battles they really care about in in federal politics? Who
0: has seized this trend the best? Is there some class of politician, be they in Congress or or obviously the president has always gotten a lot of attention. But is there anybody that has gained the most from being now in this increased spotlight?
1: That's a great question. And in part of the social scientist, I, um, you know, I, I tend to look at things not in terms of um, short run winners and losers, but in terms of sort of broader structural factors. But I do think that um, given that the Democratic Party had been the dominant party up until about 1994, at least at the congressional level, and had built that dominance on its um, its diversity, on its heterogeneity, on being a A wide, you know, offering a big tent, and so being able to incorporate both quite conservative southern and rural um, representatives, along with very very liberal um, northern, northeastern, Californian um, uh, representatives. As as politics becomes nationalized, um, what you see is that incumbent politicians get less and less of an advantage just for being incumbents, and so Mm. a generation of Democratic politicians who had won not because their voters were loyal Democrats, indeed, sometimes their voters were were leaned Republican, but because they were seen as delivering for that district. That mode of politics and that advantage to incumbents declines. And given that the Democrats had been particularly dependent on having a broad coalition that spanned from rural areas to the cities, uh, you know, until quite recently, the um, the Republican Party has been more advantaged by nationalization than the Democratic Party, and that's partly also just a function of our political geography. The fact that Democrats are heavily concentrated in cities, and that level of concentration in cities means that, um, you know, if you then refract Americans' political voices through the districts of the House of Representatives or through you know states and and then produce electoral college outcomes or Senate outcomes, you're going to advantage the party that has broader support across space, which today is the Republican Party. That's interesting.
0: So, so there is just an inherent uh, uh, kind of advantage to building a coalition then?
1: Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, America is a country of almost 330 million people, and both political parties have to build coalitions, but the Democratic Party is also um, given, given that the core of the Democratic Party is an, it's increasingly an urban party and you know urban and suburban. Um, and those voters are you know stacked in a relatively small number of places. Um, as a result, you get heavily concentrated um, Democrats. And the Democratic Party is at a disadvantage if you're com- if what you're doing is not competing for the most votes, but the most seats in in some sort of spatially um, designed legislature like Congress.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned new media and and where the internet has has taken us from there, because uh, that would seem to be if if the the zenith of infinite. A uh, uh, space to fill in in a twenty four hour news schedule, plus uh, one national voice, which is what like a CNN, a Fox News, or an MSNBC is comparative to television in the past. Then the internet is kind of the the uh, you know bandwidth uh, strength taken to another level, while narrowing down the uh, audiences that that flock to it. So are we seeing any kind of a uh, breaking down uh, if even on different lines, like by uh, a you know, very specific niche opinions when it comes to the internet, is there any eroding of some of the, the nationalization or does it increase it?
1: That's a great question. And there are a number of factors at play here. It used to be that Americans um, when, when, Congress was dealing with legislation that affected, say, doctors, that then they would work with the interest groups. and And they still, obviously, to some degree do. the American Medical Association and other you know interest groups around hospitals and insurers still play a role. But one of the challenges is that that classical kind of federated model of of grassroots organization where um, maybe there are chapters uh locally or at the state level that then feed into some national federation those kinds of mass membership organizations have been on the decline and um, and i think that there that as a consequence of that that's part of the nationalizing story that you used to have much more of a local counterweight acting in politics so that it used to be that when politicians were weighing a vote on say health-related legislation um, they would be in touch with the head of the local hospital or um, other key local actors, and that highly nationalized parties are also ones where those interest groups—it's not that they've gone away, but they need new strategies because they are the interest groups have become much more focused on on Washington D.C. and have been have become much more um, integrated with the political parties themselves. Right, so that you used to be able to think about. Pro-union um, Republicans or pro-gun Democrats, and and nowadays the partisanship has a kind of totalizing, you know, um, element to it. In that it seems like every conflict becomes uh, some variant of Republicans versus Democrats, rather than reflecting the diversity of local interests. I mean, there are you can think of a wide number of political issues where. The, you know, that might pit people differently. That might some issues may pit rural areas against urban areas, but other issues may produce may, may pit, for instance, energy producing states versus energy consuming states. Um, and our politics nowadays is just not set up to handle that kind of diversity. Everything is projected into the same um, Republican-Democratic fight, and those issues that don't work well in the kind of Republican-Democratic framework become those issues on which we're gridlocked and, and we just can't move forward
0: now you've seen over the past few elections uh, a, a real rise in inner party fighting uh the the uh, uh fight amongst the democratic party that you know is is raging on and and uh, obviously interrupted by the current events of the moment but uh, uh donald trump was somebody that was loathed by the uh the, the republican party structure until he wins uh is have we kind of crossed peak uh, a, a nationalism, and now they are straining against the two buckets that we've been consistently trying to fill?
1: I, I think that's a good a good question, and I certainly think that um, when we try to take a country with as many diverse voices and challenges as the United States, and pit Put everybody into one of two buckets. There's going to be, you know, there are going to be a lot of issues, and there are going to be a lot of groups that don't feel well represented by that system. Um, and I do think that there is there are ways in which um, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump um, have harnessed the some of the um, the concern and the the um, angst that emerges from people who feel like the current political system is not. Effectively reflecting what they would want to see. Um, at the same time, there I would um, I would caution us against too close a, a kind of correspondence between the rise of Trump or these anti you know kind of anti-establishment candidates and the nationalizing trends in politics. In that um, you certainly I mean you can think back to a whole set of of um, contested conventions, like I had earlier mentioned that the 60s and 70s were a period when politics was not especially nationalized. But nonetheless, the contestation, the fights over the Democratic nomination, say, in 1968, were heated. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think partly what's changed is less, you know, I think there are still these um, deep interparty party divisions to some degree. But I think that now they are on full display, that they used to be worked out at least to some degree you know outside of the glare of the newspapers and the television reporters and now we all know that this is what to what to watch and the process is a much 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 more open one and so a much more participatory one like i think there's no doubt that a donald trump doesn't doesn't capture the nomination over the objections of republican leaders in the system um before, you know, before 1968
0: or 1972. All right. Let me, let me switch gears just a little bit, because I I do think that there is an element here that uh, uh, does kind of play to the, the stuff that we are going through now in terms of nationalizing a message. And of course I'm talking about the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, This is obviously a national emergency as so declared by the president, but In our massively diffuse uh, country with 330 million people spread over a large landmass, it is also a local story as, uh, you know, the the actions that are taken locally matter greatly to our national trends. Do you think that we are in a better or worse situation media wise uh, with such a national heavy focus?
1: That's a great question. And I think that partly the strength of American federalism is that it allows us to tailor different kinds of policy responses to different places. So in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, I had done some research in Louisiana and Arkansas and Texas looking at how those communities responded to the evacuees. And the fact of American federalism meant that communities with different media markets um, could you know, could take in some evacuees from the hurricane, and could work to try to um, you know help support those those folks. One of my deep concerns as we look ahead to fighting coronavirus is the fact that a lot of the authority to deal with coronavirus resides with governors, right? Governors yeah. are the people who can close schools. Governors are the people who can um, make orders with respect to local businesses, and um, and so a lot of the and you know, governors obviously can call out the National Guard. Uh, but at the same time, governors and mayors are not very visible figures in contemporary American politics. Uh, and so they they don't have a lot of channels through which to communicate. And yes, you know, the New York Times may cover Andrew Cuomo's press conferences. But I one of the things that I worry about is that if, as this crisis proceeds, it's, it becomes more and more important to, to give different messages to people in different parts of the country. It's going to be very, very hard for governors and mayors to sing a different tune in different places. right? So I yeah. think that our nationalized media um, can be an asset if what we want to do is get the you know, 330 million people in this country to do something together. But at the same time, if what we need is to provide local information to people about what to do if they get sick or when it's safe to reopen businesses and schools, I I worry a lot that our highly nationalized media environment is going to be one in which people just don't know whom to trust or where to look for this kind of information. And I've I've seen this in the surveys that I do um, where I'll ask people, you know, just describe your mayor or governor. Let's say you had to describe your mayor or governor to somebody um, from another place. And people's responses, they're very, very apologetic, but they'll often say, hey, I'm sorry. I just don't – you know, just a moment ago they were telling me how passionately they felt about national politics. Yeah. But they just don't know often that much about local politics. Um, and our conception of kind of what a good citizen is is often somebody who's up on national politics you know maybe who reads reads a national paper or watches a national cable television outlet but not somebody who is you know well deeply steeped in in the intricacies of local government and i think a lot of this crisis is ultimately going to fall especially you know as we move into a period of time when some cities and some communities may be very, very hard hit, while others may be itching to go back to work. And I think that's an environment in which I really worry that our nationalized media environment is not well suited to communicating nuanced messages in different
0: places. So, for example, you know, I'm I'm speaking to you here in, in the Bay Area. There were some stories that came out yesterday that uh, because we were one of the earliest you know population clusters to go under shelter at home there are some encouraging signs in terms of us flattening the curve that even if maybe in a bygone era it would have been a lot easier for you know the the Oakland Tribune and the San Francisco Chronicle and the local television stations to say all right uh, a local government is saying that maybe we can open this up a little bit more it's much harder to do when that would be blaring national news, and now the, the natural conversation would be, well, if them, why not us? Or if we're still suffering, why do they uh, open up what is different? That's a harder conversation to have. Absolutely.
1: But on the flip side, um, you can see this playing out with questions around supplies. If if this crisis, crisis hits different places at different times, in theory, we could then move key assets like ventilators or other resources from place to place but obviously, in a highly nationalized environment, no governor is going to let a ventilator leave her, his state right now, um, because they may well want it in a week's time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so I guess there is there is some element of well, I, I guess there really is an element of of, of a benefit to a national uh national centric media market when i mean i i don't I don't think we would have been able to ring the bell on on how serious this is and for people to take it as serious if we didn't right like the you know the the big news obviously as we record this is that the president's coronavirus council came out with a very a grim outlook of a hundred thousand to two hundred and forty thousand people dead and that there there could be a you know an outer idea of of two point two million I don't know if i mean that at least anecdotally to me, seems to have scared a lot of people, and probably for the better, I don't know if that happens the same way if we're now relying on every local radio bulletin or local television station or local headline writer to interpret that in the same way.
1: Yes. There are are moments, and I think what I worry about is less, I think there are advantages to having a highly nationalized politics. I think there are advantages to having a more decentralized politics. What I keep coming back to and what I really worry about is when there is a mismatch between our attention, which is increasingly nationally focused. Mm. And, yes, there are advantages to that. We can take a diverse nation of 330 million people and we can shut down economic activity with surprising speed, right? um but on the flip side what i worry about is the mismatch between citizens attention and um which is high, so highly national and the authority in the federal system which which often resides at the state and local levels and that um you know as much as we may be focused on what's happening in Washington DC a lot of the critical decisions are also going to come from from governors and mayors and if we want those governors and mayors to be accountable for those decisions, we need to live in a world where information about the decisions they make is going to reach voters.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm I'm very, very glad that we had this conversation because I do think that no matter where we stand on the, the, the benefits or uh, the perils of it, it is important for, especially now when information is literally life or death, Uh that we have an idea of the system that we are dealing with. And for that, we have to thank Dan Hopkins, a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. You can find his book, The Increasingly United States, How and Why American Politics Nationalized, available now. And I'll tell you what, folks, looks like we got at least another month uh, where we're sitting inside. So uh, now would be a good time to read it. He is also currently working on a book about how Americans think about the affordable care act uh dan thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us
1: justin thank you so much for all the attention to these important issues
0: all right before we wrap up i want to go ahead and get to our emails TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com that's where you can uh send us some feedback here uh my mom sent me an email and then she followed up via text message to ask whether or not i'd read it yet so i'm gonna read it now My mom writes the supply chain, which I guess the headline here is my mom has worked in uh, supply chain logistics from China specifically uh, for, I mean, I guess two decades at this point. Maybe even a touch more. Uh, So she wanted to explain what supply chains were. And so here we go. My mom is explaining to you what supply chains are. We begin. A supply chain consists of three main elements, the manufacturer, the distributor, and the consumer. All three depend on each other to function, and consistency is the key. Both the manufacturer and the distributor have inventory planners upon whom they depend on to make sure that the manufacturer has all the essential raw materials required to manufacture their products, and the distributor has enough product to supply to meet consumers' demands. But here's the key. The inventory planners for both the manufacturer and the distributor rely heavily on historical data, i.e. past purchase and usage. When demand spikes drastically, which is what's happening right now with, let's say, toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and wipes, it sets the whole delicate balance of a supply chain upside down. Distributors who supply to the grocery store and other retailers, regardless of how much extra stock they have uh, ordered for the manufacturers, cannot keep up with the demand because they simply don't have enough stock on hand. This causes spike orders to the manufacturers who are already caught off guard, regardless of how much safety stock of raw materials they might have on hand, They simply will not be able to manufacture fast enough or make enough of the products that are in such high demand. The same concept goes for food, by the way. Add to this the transportation of these products from the manufacturer or grower to the distributors and the distributors to retail outlets. They too are overburdened by the high demand for products that so many are hoarding. There simply are not enough trucks or truck drivers to transport all of the goods to their various destinations. So, please, if you have enough of high demand products to last you a few weeks, don't buy more, quote, just to have or, quote, just in case. Let the supply chain catch up. Take a breath. Don't panic. We manufacture most of all these high-demand products right here in the United States. We're not dependent on China or any foreign supply for these goods. Everything will level out as long as consumers are educated on how the supply chain functions. So there you go. Professor Young (laughs) <laughs> letting us know uh, uh, Econ 101 on supply chain she's not wrong she's absolutely correct and I probably should have read this a little earlier when some of the panic buying was happening but I can only imagine with everything extended another 30 days that still is a, a lesson that some folks need to hear and finally DB writes prudence is watching your hands for 20 seconds politics is washing your hands until someone Walks in the room. And with that, we remind you that the young American is where you can email me. You can follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. Follow me on Instagram at Justin R. Young. Follow me on Snapchat at Justin R. Young. Till next time. We want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Brad Thor, Nomadic Terran, your boy Craig. Robert, Olin, and Angela, Dustin, Richard, Kilowatt Podcast, Darren Kitchen, Daily Tech News Show, Melkleg, Scoop, J. Milius, Paul Thompson, Jonathan Scott, The Jen, Nicholas, Adam, Zach, Chad, Andrew, Peter, Nick, Frozen, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Adam, D. Laser, and middle aged Mike. You guys, I mean, what else? What else can I say? What more can I say? You guys are, again, safest job in media. Who knew it was being a nomad in the middle of the desert trying to entertain you guys? Oh, my Lord. Till next time, a reminder that politics has three names, and I saw that there was a show talking about politics. There was another one talking about politics, and when I flipped on the cable television... I saw one talking about politics but this is the only show that talks about ho